from South Carolina Public Radio. This is the South Carolina Lead. I'm your host, Gavin Jackson, and this episode was recorded on February 17th, 2023 from Manchester, New Hampshire, specifically a Spring Hill Suites next to the Manchester airport. Yeah, just so you know, some of the information in this podcast may have changed by the time you've heard it, and you might hear a plane takeoff in the background. Now, this episode is dedicated to an in-depth look at former governor, ambassador to the United Nations, and now Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley, since she has officially joined the 2024 race for the White House. We hear from her formal campaign launch in Charleston and take a look back at the defining moments of her nearly 20 years in politics. We also hear from Gibbs Knotts, the College of Charleston Dean of the School of Humanities and Sciences, who provides analysis on this announcement and more. While I am in New Hampshire following Haley, along with more than a dozen other members of the press, I'm the only one from South Carolina on the ground for this initial swing that's so far involved two very full town hall events. I'll provide y'all with a ground report in Tuesday's podcast, and then next Saturday we'll finish up with a report from Iowa. It's a big tease right there, folks. I am running for president of the United States of America. Haley's announcement has been years in the making. Speculation of higher office has always surrounded her during her two terms as governor, ambassador, and it was heightened when she left the post at the end of 2018. We start this podcast with a look at how Haley went from Nikki Who to Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley, South Carolina's own. She was born Nimrata Nikki Randawa in the Midlands hamlet of Bamberg to Indian immigrants. Her father taught at Voorhees College for 30 years, and she grew up working the books at her mother's clothing company. Haley, a brown girl growing up in a black and white world as she described it, learned life lessons about race, discrimination, and acceptance from an early age, lessons she's carried with her over her 51 years. She attended Clemson University, where she met her husband Michael the first weekend of her freshman year, and she graduated with an accounting degree. Michael and Nikki started their family in Lexington County with their daughter Rena and son Nalen. Haley was inspired to run for office after hearing Hillary Clinton speak at an event in Greenville, and she decided to challenge 30-year incumbent State Representative Larry Kuhn for his seat and beat him in a runoff in 2004. From there, Haley was on her way up the ranks as a House lawmaker, even becoming Majority Whip, until she challenged the status quo by pushing for greater transparency with the simple act of roll call votes being on the record, which soon had her on the outs with her party. The fallout of her legislative independent streak and push for reforms led to another life lesson of fighting for what was right despite the cost, because it soon translated into a bigger win thanks to a confluence of support from a fellow disruptor, then-Governor Mark Sanford, who pushed her to run as his successor. Despite the fallout later from the news of his extramarital affair, Haley made it through, along with some help from the growing Tea Party movement, which was raging, and former vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin's endorsement that propelled her into the runoff despite a daunting primary field of seasoned politicians. Now here's a clip from Palin that goes into ABC's George Stephanopoulos talking to Haley after she won the primary against then-Attorney General Henry McMaster, Lieutenant Governor Andre Bauer, and a runoff against Congressman Gresham Barrett. Take a listen. So I figured, yeah, let me swing by and give a shout-out to a strong pro-family, pro-life, pro-Second Amendment, pro-development, conservative reformer, your next governor, Nikki Haley. Where Nikki Haley, who wasn't well-known when the governor's race began, has beaten out the lieutenant governor, the attorney general, and a four-term member of Congress to take a big lead into the runoff, and State Representative Nikki Haley joins us now. Congratulations on last night, uh, Representative Haley. Uh, Is that what you saw 
last night, voters venting their frustration? You know, I think what we saw was the fact that voters want elected officials who remember who it is they work for. They want someone that understands the value of a dollar. They are tired of backroom deals. They want to make sure there's more transparency and accountability. And it certainly showed in South Carolina. And I think we're going to continue to see it show across the country. You did face a very, very tough campaign. I know South Carolina has a reputation for that. As, as John Carl reported, two men who had some connections to rival campaigns said they had affairs with, with you. And last night, the man you faced in the runoff, Congressman Barrett, said character is not one of the things that matters. It's the only thing that matters. Do you expect more incoming during the runoff? You know, I mean, the one thing we noticed was um, we were Nikki Who about six weeks ago, and then all of a sudden it showed we had a double-digit lead in the polls, and then we had everything but the kitchen sink thrown at us. And our opponents got together. They threw as much distractions as they could, but we stayed very determined. All it did was make us fo more focused on making sure the voice of the people were heard. Haley went on to defeat then-Democratic State Senator Vincent Shaheen in the election with her one-time primary opponent and future Lieutenant Governor Henry McMaster introducing her after becoming the first ever woman and minority governor of South Carolina on election night 2010. I'll tell you, we are red hot. We are getting ready to show what South Carolina can do. And our new leader is Nikki Haley. Two months later on Inauguration Day, Haley walked down the statehouse steps with her predecessor, Governor Mark Sanford, as she began an administration focused on turning the page, navigating the fallout of the Great Recession by growing the state's economy and manufacturing base, one job at a time. Today, our state and nation face difficult times. Far too many of our fellow citizens are without a job. Our economy is not growing as fast as it should. And our state budget has the largest shortfall ever. But when I survey this troubled landscape, I am not discouraged. We know that tough times can produce some of the best decisions. And it is our duty to make this time of challenge into the opportunity it can be to turn our state around. Then, after winning re-election in 2014, again against Senator Shaheen, Haley was back, walking down the same south side steps of the State House. Ladies and gentlemen, please rise and greet the governor of the great state of South Carolina, Her Excellency, Haley. During her second inaugural address, Haley acknowledged the initial concerns those had of her first term, especially as the youngest governor in the country. But thriving as an underdog is where she's most comfortable. I am not unaware that four years ago, when I spoke for the first time as governor, there was some skepticism. It was not unfounded. I was young, I was unknown, and I was different. But I knew in my heart then, as I know now, what South Carolina could be. We are a fiercely proud state, a state with a history as rich as it is complicated, a state where the intensity of our individualism is surpassed only by the shared joy we draw from being collectively South Carolinians. And therein lies our strength. While her first term was about fixing South Carolina, her second term was soon about holding the state together through natural disasters, the shooting of Walter Scott, and the massacre of nine black parishioners at the hands of a white supremacist at Mother Emanuel Amy Church in Charleston on June 17, 2015, an event that nearly broke Haley. Here she is in 2016 discussing the tragedy. This is Bible study. You know, this is what so many South Carolinians do every Wednesday night. And so the shock of something like this happening 
in the most sacred of places was hard to stomach. What was hard for me was the heartbreak of what had happened. And how do you heal a state in a way that children aren't scared to go to church? And how do you heal a state in a way that that's the place we go to feel safe? And when you suddenly realize that a place like that is no longer safe, you want to wrap your arms around the state and protect them. But there was no way not to grieve. Then this was the sound of some 10,000 people outside of the state house as the Confederate battle flag was taken down days after the horrific shooting. The power of the horrific event, the way the shooter idealized the Confederate battle flag, and the grace victims' families showed led Haley to call for the downing of the controversial symbol that had been flying out front of the State House since 2000, after previously flying atop the State House dome since 1961. Before signing the bill, Haley spoke in a packed State House lobby surrounded by lawmakers, former governors, press, and others, and she said this. So, you know, it's hard for us to look at what is happening today and not think back to 22 days ago. It seems like so long ago because the grieving has been so hard. But at the same time, we have all been struck by what was a tragedy that we didn't think we would ever encounter. Nine amazing people that forever changed South Carolina's history. Just a day before the horrific shooting in Charleston, the New York real estate mogul turned Republican firebrand Donald Trump announced his bid for the 2016 presidential election. While his controversial announcement created waves worldwide, the focus in South Carolina was on healing the state. Haley herself attended all nine funerals of those who were slain, and it took a toll. Weight loss, post-traumatic stress, this was the most challenging time of her life. But even as Trump's rhetoric, which included racial dog whistles, as well as undertones of hate and xenophobia, began registering with bigger and bigger crowds, including in early voting South Carolina, Haley's lieutenant governor took note of the growing dissatisfaction Trump had tapped into and became the first statewide official in the nation to endorse Trump in 2016, a savvy move that would pay Henry McMaster dividends and make him Haley's successor in early 2017. Here he is giving his speech, seconding Trump's nomination at the 2016 Republican National Convention in Cleveland. To paraphrase one of the poets of our time, Buffalo Springfield. There's something happening here. What it is is precisely clear. We are going to make America great again with Donald Trump. Thank you, and God bless you. But Haley couldn't stomach the Trump rhetoric and the fervor it stoked and alluded to as much when she delivered the Republican response to President Barack Obama's 2016 State of the Union address that January. During anxious times, it can be tempting to follow the siren call of the angriest voices. We must resist that temptation. No one who is willing to work hard, abide by our laws, and love our traditions should ever feel unwelcome in this country. At the same time, that does not mean we just flat out open our borders. We can't do that. We cannot continue to allow immigrants to come here illegally. Haley and Senator Tim Scott, whom she appointed to fulfill Jim DeMint's remaining term in 2012, ended up backing Florida Senator Marco Rubio, 
a snub to former Florida Governor Jeb Bush, who had been close with Haley early in her career, but was flailing in the polls and eventually came in fourth in South Carolina's primary. Even Rubio narrowly won second place over Senator Ted Cruz, 10 points behind Trump. Here is Haley stumping with Rubio in Atlanta and blasting Trump for not disavowing former KKK Grand Wizard David Duke, who encouraged his radio listeners to vote for Trump. But the one thing that I want you to remember that I came from South Carolina to Georgia to tell you is South Carolina went through a terrible tragedy last year. And the KKK came to South Carolina from out of state to protest on our state house grounds. We saw and looked at true hate in the eyes last year in Charleston. I will not stop until we fight a man that chooses not to disavow the KKK. That is not a part of our party. That's not who we want as president. We will not allow that in our country. But it all changed on election night 2016. Just listen to CNN's Wolf Blitzer. Right now, a historic moment. Uh, we can now project the winner of the presidential race. CNN projects Donald Trump wins the presidency. The business tycoon and TV personality capping his improbable political journey with an astounding upset victory. Donald J. Trump will become the 45th president of the United States, defeating Hillary Clinton in a campaign unlike anything we've seen in our lifetime. Despite being a reluctant Trump supporter at the end there, his 2016 win created a silver lining no one expected, Nikki Haley's third act. This time giving the state chief executive experience on the international stage as ambassador to the United Nations. A thank you from Trump to clear the way for McMaster to finally become governor with Haley moving up. Before she was confirmed by the U.S. Senate, she gave her seventh and final State of the State address where she recalled some of the important and difficult moments of her tenure. I will remember the willingness of the people in this room to step into someone else's shoes, find genuine understanding, remove a divisive symbol of an oppressive past, and move South Carolina forward. Days later and moments after securing enough votes in the Senate, Haley resigned and watched on as her lieutenant governor, Henry McMaster, became the 117th governor of South Carolina. And with it, she headed to New York. Haley brought years of South Carolina political grit with her to the international stage and threw an initial punch on her first day. And the way that we'll show value is to show our strength, show our voice, um, have the backs of our allies, and make sure that our allies have our back as well. For those that don't have our back, we're taking names. From facing off against North Korea, Iran, Russia, China, and others, Haley fell into a groove and began trying to reform an institution which America heavily funds, but she says doesn't get a good enough return on their investment. Moving the American embassy to Jerusalem, fighting North Korea on missile testing, and getting an arms embargo passed against South Sudan were wins. But blasting Syria for gassing its own people and chastising foes for not supporting a resolution condemning Bashar al-Assad's regime was a defining moment. While fighting in New York, she still had to deal with internal turmoil of the unorthodox Trump administration. However, as a cabinet member and part of the National Security Council, she was always able to cut through to reach Trump, especially when he made major missteps. Removing the United States from the Human Rights Council was also a big win for Haley, who saw the organization as ineffective, especially considering some of the problematic countries and regimes that were represented in the group. Here she is in Vienna in 2018, 
with then Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. The United States is officially withdrawing from the UN Human Rights Council. In doing so, I want to make it crystal clear that this step is not a retreat from human rights commitments. On the contrary, we take this step because our commitment does not allow us to remain a part of a hypocritical and self-serving organization that makes a mockery of human rights. Haley, who had outlasted others in the shaky first years of the Trump administration, including the Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, both who were ousted in the spring of 2018, was now feeling the squeeze of their replacements, Mike Pompeo and John Bolton, respectively, who both sought to clamp down on her influence and input with Trump. Those were contributing factors that led to her decision to bow out at the end of the year, which she surprised Trump with in an October 2018 announcement in the White House Oval Office. I think you have to be selfless enough to know when you step aside and allow someone else to do the job. So thank you, Mr. President. You. It's been an sure, honor sure. of a lifetime. And I will say this um, for all of you that are going to ask about 2020. No, I'm not running for 2020. I can promise you what I'll be doing is campaigning for this one. So I look forward to supporting the president in the next election. Haley became a private citizen for the first time in 15 years in January 2019. And despite rumors that she was preparing to replace Vice President Mike Pence, she moved to Kiowa Island, wrote two books, briefly joined the Boeing Board of Directors, gave high-dollar speeches, and lived a relatively unscheduled life with her family as she watched her party lose the White House in 2020, building on the losses of the 2018 midterms, and then she worked to support a red wave that didn't materialize in the 2022 midterms. As a result of those losses, she spoke about the need to take the country in another direction with Fox News's Brett Bayer days before her own announcement to run for president, despite saying she wouldn't get in the race if former President Donald Trump did, which he did in November. But generational change is needed, she told Bayer. But when you're looking at a run for president, you look at two things. You first look at, does the current situation push for new leadership? The second question is, Am I that person that could be that new leader? That yes, we need to go in a new direction. And can I be that leader? Yes, I think I can be that leader. Now, after years of the questions of will she or won't she, Nikki Haley made it official with a video released on Valentine's Day morning and then on Wednesday before some 2,000 supporters in downtown Charleston, where she walked out to Eye of the Tiger and made it official. Here are some moments from that address. But there's something else that's eating away at our national core. On Biden and Harris's watch, a self-loathing has swept our country. It's in the classroom, the boardroom, and the back rooms of government. Every day we're told America is flawed, rotten, and full of hate. Joe and Kamala even say America's racist. Nothing could be further from the truth. The American people know better. My immigrant parents know better. And take it from me, the first minority female governor in history, America is not a racist country. <laughs> Strengthening America, believing once again in America, is the only way to defend ourselves from those who want to destroy us. When America is distracted, the world is less safe. And today our enemies think that the American era has passed. They're wrong. America is not past our prime. It's just that our politicians are past theirs. 
will stand with our allies from Israel to Ukraine and stand up to our enemies in Iran and Russia. And in the America I see, communist China won't just lose. Like the Soviet Union before it, communist China will end up on the ash heap of history. Unity does not come from faint hearts or watered down compromises. That just leaves everyone wanting more. Real national unity comes from boldly proclaiming our national purpose and persuading opponents to join us. My purpose is to save our country from the downward spiral of socialism and defeatism. I aim to move America upward toward freedom and strength. I'll take this message far and wide in the days ahead. And I have a particular message for my fellow Republicans. We've lost the popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections. Our cause is right, but we have failed to win the confidence of a majority of Americans. Well, that ends today. For a strong America, for a proud America, I am running for president of the United States of America. To understand more about this historic announcement, we spoke with Gibbs Knotts. He's the Dean of the College of Humanities and Sciences at the College of Charleston. And he's also co-authored the book on the South Carolina primary. And I started off by asking Professor Knotts just what Nikki Haley has to do to make it to November 2024 in a field where former President Donald Trump commands a solid chunk of supporters and other challengers are set to materialize including Senator Tim Scott, who launched a listening tour the day after her announcement, as well as others like Pompeo, former Vice President Mike Pence, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and more. Here's my conversation with Professor Knotts at CFC's Cistern Yard, where I opened by asking him what Haley has to do to win. I think she's got to figure out what her lane is. Right now, she's pretty low in the national polls, but you know she's just kicking off her campaign, and it's definitely a mistake to underestimate Nikki Haley. She's never lost an election. She has executive experience, but she also has experience in the international arena by working in the United Nations. And so, again, somebody who's a very formidable a candidate and somebody to be taken very seriously for 2024. And what we talk about that, Gibbs, we talk about this field. She's now the second person to jump in this field at this point in February 2023. Uh, it's a long way to next year when we see these primaries. What does she have to do right now with Donald Trump? I mean, yeah. she's going to be fighting with him a good bit. I'm sure there might be some nicknames. There might be some back and forth. Right. Uh, how does that, how does she have to mesh that? Yeah, I mean, she's been somebody who over the course of her career has been able to kind of get the favor of Trump, but also reach out and get traditional Republican voters and support for them as well. It's not every candidate can't do that. And so obviously there's going to be a feud now because she's challenging him. And she said she ultimately wouldn't run if he was going to run. But I do think, look, she's tough. I suspect she'll probably use some humor. I think she'll probably pull on some, you know, pull some Southern, good Southern phrases out there, like bless your heart or something like that to really try to beat back Trump. I mean, it was no one was really able to, to sort of survive in 2016 
He was very effective at one by one, whether it was Lion Ted Cruz or little Marco Rubio. But, uh, but I suspect she's gonna be, it's gonna be harder to do that to her and she's extremely tough and I think she'll be able to fight back. Gibbs, you saw 2016, we we're just talking about right. that. You, you and uh, Jordan Ragusa, your counterpart, have written the primary book on South Carolina yeah. and the primaries. Yeah. Uh, but we saw in 2016, like you're saying, just how difficult it was for people to break out. Right. She did back Marco Rubio back then. That's right. So does that mean that she's gonna have a tough time kind of doing what he did as well, getting above that 22% when Trump had a solid 30 something? I think a lot of it depends on how many people run. If it is a field with 10 people, Trump's support is just so strong amongst his core group that I do think it's gonna be hard for, for anybody to beat Trump if a lot of candidates, but if she's able to, if folks drop out sooner, if she's able to go head to head with Trump, I mean, I think she, she has a really good chance. Of course, it's DeSantis floating around, figuring out what he's gonna do. Mm -hmm. uh, but but look, Nikki Haley's got a great resume. She's a very compelling candidate. I think she's gonna be able to raise money. And I think she's got a lot of experience. And I think she's gonna be able to, you know, be, be really impressive on those debate stages as well. Mm -hmm. Just figuring out her lane on the primary is gonna be one of her biggest challenges. Yeah, because it is a different Republican Party right. right now. It was different back in 2016. It's even more different now. Right. It's kind of hard to understand the fractured nature of it all too. So does she need to be a moderate voice? Does she need to be more of an extreme voice? I suspect she'll probably kind of try to play to both sides a little bit. I mean, I do think, you know, she governed kind of, you know, as somebody who, you know, wasn't necessarily, was a fiscal conservative, but wouldn't get into a bunch of social issues and, and things like that. And so, you know, I think just trying to figure out as she goes and meets voters in Iowa, goes to New Hampshire, and of course travels around here in South Carolina, trying to figure out what her message is, but I think it's going to be a lot on, you know, let's get the economy back, let's bring strength back to America, let's sort of figure out our immigration system. I think she'll sort of borrow from some of the previous campaigns and certainly pull some, probably take some policies that Trump supported and try to endorse those as well. And when you talk about being from the South, you know, like you mentioned, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis being in the South as well, right. possible 2024 candidate. Uh, tell us about what folks need to do to win the South, what they might have up their sleeve, like their Southern heritage, uh, maybe their experience, yeah. maybe people that don't really understand how South Carolina and the primaries work. What yeah. should people be looking for? What do these candidates need to do to win the state? So to win South Carolina on the Republican side, you've got to do well with evangelical voters. They make up a big portion of the of the primary of the Republican primary electorate in South Carolina. So certainly being able to speak to people who attend church, who, who uh, you know, think about those types of issues. But South Carolina does have a pretty good mix of different types of Republicans. And so, you know, we've got some, you know, more business focused Republicans down here in the Charleston area and in the low country. And so I think being able to kind of talk to all those different groups will be important. I do think having a candidate, you know, we found in our book that having a candidate from the South isn't, being from the South is an advantage in the South Carolina primary. Just the ability to connect with the voters, you know, understand them from a cultural perspective. I think Haley has that advantage having grown up in South Carolina and served in this state for so long. Mm -hmm. And then it's also, of course, she has to go to Iowa. She has to go to New Hampshire. Yeah. She's going there. Um, she's on the road up there right now. Tell us what she needs to do up there and how that's different yeah. when it comes to this nominating process and how she needs to appeal uh, to those voters. Yeah, the electorate's different in Iowa and New Hampshire. And a lot of times, Gavin, Iowa picks one candidate, New Hampshire picks a different candidate, and then we come in in the third slot and kind of serve as that tiebreaker. But yeah, absolutely, there's gonna be different things. New Hampshire. 
there's going to be a lot of independents that could come in and vote in the Republican Party, and I think that's going to be good for Nikki Haley. Iowa, it tends to be pretty evangelical and a little more conservative than New Hampshire on the Republican side, and so I do think she's going to have to figure out a way to appeal to two sort of different electorates, but, you know, it can be done. I'll be curious to see, does she just decide, sometimes candidates will decide, I'm better off in Iowa, that's where I'm going to spend my time, or really the New Hampshire primary lines up better for me. My gut says probably uh, New Hampshire, but I don't really know. It's going to be curious to see. Mm -hmm. And then Gibbs, before we get out of here, just tell me about some of the top issues that you think we'll see play out. And also maybe Nikki Haley's issue when it comes to dealing with her messaging. <laughs> Sometimes people say she's gone back and forth, especially when yeah. it came to Trump. What does she need to do to maybe stick on the issue, stick on the policy and, and maybe not go back and forth because she has it's yeah. like a reputation for that right That's, now? Yeah, I, I think I think she's got to figure out what her what her response is to Donald Trump and, and being able to talk about like, you know, look, you know, I supported him. I served in his cabinet. But I think just this new generation of leadership, it's time to pass the torch. It's time to think of a new generation. But she has a lot of experience. She's still fairly young, especially when you look at some of our national politicians today. So I think being able to sort of make the case to, you know, to, to, she can be the candidate of the future, not the candidate of the past. And it's time to move forward. Again, that was Gibbs Knotts, the dean of the College of Humanities and Sciences at the College of Charleston. Now, the road to the White House runs right through South Carolina, and SCETV and South Carolina Public Radio will be covering every step of the way, including our state's important early voting role. And you'll be getting plenty of that here on the SC Lead. Our coverage will continue next week as we bring you another special report on Ambassador Haley's initial swing through the early voting states of New Hampshire and Iowa. And you know, we'll be there every step of the way, so keep it locked, folks. Keep it here. Tell your friends to subscribe and find out. What's going on on the road to 2024?